The following is a continuation of the previous episode. Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, we continue looking at Daniel's vision in chapters 10 and 11. The messenger tells Daniel of three more kings that will arise in Persia. Who are these kings and why does it matter? Exploring the historical context and the narrative presented in Daniel, we take a look at what our role is in the kingdom of God and the trajectory of God's eternal story. So, verse 2 then. He says, Now I will tell you the truth. So he's kind of introduced himself in this angelic realm and so forth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So that's pretty specific, isn't it? you got Cyrus. You're going to have three more kings. And the fourth will be far richer than them all by his strength through his riches. He shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. So now this part I actually do know something about because this is Persia versus, versus Greece. So the three more kings are pretty well known in secular history. And one thing I've noticed about commentaries is when there's some overlap between the Bible and secular history as it's understood, they do a really good job of laying that out. And so I've got a commentary here I'm going to be referring to that does a really excellent job of this. So let's see, it was Cambyses from 530 to 522, so Cambyses here would be just um, half a dozen years away or so from taking over from Cyrus. Smyrtus for just a short time, and then Darius I. Darius I goes from 522 to 486. Now, 522 to 486 is really significant because Darius is the guy that invaded Greece. And you know the Battle of Marathon. You know it because of the Marathon race, right? So the way the Marathon race came about is that when the Battle of Marathon was fought, one of the soldiers wanted to run back and beat the messenger. See, the Greeks had these guys that ran all over Greece that were like the Pony Express, except they ran. That's what they did for a living. But one of the foot soldiers wanted to do it and beat this guy whose profession was to tell the story. And he got back and said, we won, and then died. So this Marathon race we run is in honor of somebody that was dumb enough to you know, kill himself to do somebody else's job. So I don't know what, no, I know what you think about that, but I guess it was courageous. So what Darius did is he came in and invaded Greece. He accomplished most of his purposes, and this is 490 B.C., 490 B.C. And when he got to Marathon, he was met by the Athenians. And according to our guide we had when we went there, she was telling us about this battle. She said they were normally the Greeks were outnumbered like two to one or three to one or something like that. And they had armor and they had this fantastic fighting approach where they would get in a phalanx and they had these spears that are like 12, 14 feet long. And they would get like back one row, two rows, three rows, four rows. And they would just do their spear like thrusting it forward. And then if somebody gets tired, they would just go to the back or whatever. So they turned themselves into this armored vehicle with spears protruding out. And they just just roll over anybody that they're with. Well, at Marathon, she told us, they were outnumbered 10 to 1. So it was really, really one of the greatest victories in, in all Athens. The way they did it is really interesting. It was one of the first times this tactic was used. They came up to the Persians who were landing on the shore that was vastly outnumbered. And what they did is they let the middle collapse. And so the Persians thought, ah, oh, we got them on the run. And then they had the flanks mash them right between them. So it was really a spectacular victory, really famous battle. Well, that happened to Darius. 
So what Darius did is he went home and started preparing for a real invasion. And a word started coming back to Greece that he was, he was piling up foodstuffs in, in mountains that blocked out the sun. And he was building ships. And so he was getting ready, okay, because you, you defied my honor. And, of course, if you're a king and you allow your prestige to be marred, you're in trouble because one goes, they can all go. So Darius started preparing for this massive invasion. But then he died. And he left it to his son. And this is the fourth king who's far richer than them all. And this is Xerxes. Xerxes the first. He's also known as Ahasuerus, who's the king in Esther. So Xerxes the first picked up this campaign from his dad. He's going to finish it off. And I think there's something like 400 ships that he had. Nobody really knows these numbers, but I'm going to, I'm going to take it from our guide because she's Greek. So she probably is exaggerating everything based on what I learned from the Greeks. But nobody really knows. So. so a million people invade. And, of course, these are all conscripts. They've got people from Arabia, people from wherever. They're from the Persian kingdom. And they've got 400 ships that are supplying these guys as they, as they march in. The Greeks dallied around and didn't really pay much attention to them, of course, until right at the last minute. And then they very quickly came together, and there's an alliance that's formed between Sparta and and Athens, which are the two dominant powers. They need a little time to get ready to resist the invasion. So 300 Spartans and 1,000 uh, people from, uh, I think it was Thebes. Anybody remember for sure? Thebes? Yeah, 1,000 Thebans went to this pass that you have to go through right between the shore and the mountains. It's only about a quarter mile wide called Thermopylae, the Gates of Fire. And they made a stand there of the million people coming in from Persia and delayed them for about three days. It would have delayed them for a lot longer, but as was the tendency with Greeks, a guy saw a way to make some money. So he sold the knowledge of how to come around the mountains and flank them from the back. And so that's how they ended up beginning defeated. And those 1,300 guys, the 300 Spartans and the 1,000 Thebans died, but they bought enough time for the Athenians to get ready for the invasion, the Athenians and the Spartans, but mainly the Athenians to get ready for the invasion. And that's the famous uh, episode of Thermopylae. That's called the Greek Alamo by some people. And it was a pretty uh, well-known uh, battle. Just a little thing about that that I find, found really interesting. What they did is they did the same thing. They would let the Persian army start to invade and then fall back and then stop. And the, there were so many people in the Persian army, they would surge forward and they couldn't stop. So they would just butcher them. Just butcher them until they were about to get really tired and need some rest. And according to our guide, she estimated this 1,300 killed like 200,000 people. Now again, these numbers, who knows about the numbers, but there was a mass slaughter that took place there. So then the Persians ended up invading. This guy named Themistocles, who was the, one of the main uh, Greek guys, he had uh, sent a message saying, we're going to escape by night. And, and making sure that the Persians intercepted this message. So they intercepted it and said, we got them. So they brought their ships into the Bay of Salamis to keep the Greeks from escaping because they wanted to make sure they just mashed them all. And they did that at night. And when the sun rose, they look up and the Greek navy is in fighting formation. And they say, uh-oh, rut row. Because the Greek ships were, were little torpedoes, basically, triremes. They had the oars, they had the sail, but they're basically submarines, ramming submarines. And in a, in a closed quarters, they were vastly superior to these Persian ships that were more open sea type ships. So they saw they come open and the, the Greeks had tricked them. 
and they went in and they wiped out the Persian navy. And Xerxes had set himself up a throne up on the cliff to watch this final battle where the Greeks are finally dispatched with. And his father's honor is restored. And instead, he says, um, I can't uh, supply my army anymore, so we're toast, and so I'm heading back to Persia on the double. So the Persians started retreating. The Greeks realized, hey, if uh, we let these guys get away, they're just going to come back again. So they chased them. And again, still vastly outnumbered. But they met them on the plains of Plataea, wiped them out. Whoever, And of course, these are all slaves or conscripts. So lots and lots of desertions. Who knows how many they killed. Everybody probably in the Persian army that could escape did. And that was it. That was the end of Persian dominance. Now, we don't see actually Persia get conquered because that's 480 B.C. and and, uh, uh, Alexander is still going to be 150 years away. But this is really where Persian dominance ended. So now, that's the the fourth king. And then verse 3, what's that? Yeah, yeah, and that's when Xerxes went back and, and to drown his sorrows picked a new queen. If you read in Esther and it says that he asked his uh, queen Vashti to come and do a strip tease for everybody, and she said, I'm not going to do that. I guess they were all drunk or something. And they passed this law that all women have to do what their husbands say and stuff. So you can see how his pride would be kind of wounded and he'd be pretty you know, susceptible to rejection at that point in time. That's why he got a new queen. And the book of Esther happens because he had his pride broken and now is protecting his pride. You know, at least I can get my women to do what I want me to do. Okay, so that's what happens there. All right, thank you for that. And then verse 3, see world geopolitics and relationships. They're indistinguishable. They always go together. So verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great domination and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom will be, shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor among according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. So this is Alexander the Great now. So we, we skip forward 150 years, because again, what, what this prophecy is doing is it's just showing us the string of events that's going to give us the abomination of desolation. And this apparently was something that Daniel said, okay, now I get it. So you had a mighty king that arises, and Alexander the Great came along, and he he rolled up the world in pretty short order. As a matter of fact, by um, uh, 331 B.C., he had conquered the whole world. He was 25 years old. I think it took him about six years to conquer the whole Persian Empire. So when we saw in uh, chapter 8, I think it was, the goat that's running across the face of the earth and his, his feet aren't even touching the ground and nothing can withstand him, that's Alexander the Great. He just kind of rolls it all up. He's 25, he's king of the world, he's conquered everything he's set out to do, set out to subjugate, and eight years later he's dead. He died when he's 33 of a sickness. So after he died, uh, his generals took over, split up the kingdom. So you had the four points of the compass, they split it up, and you don't hear too much about the Greece and Macedonia. They were the weaker of the kingdoms, and they got, they got absorbed by Rome fairly quickly. But now most of the rest of this that we're going to get in chapter 11 is all about 
the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. So I'm going to go through this with you next week when we get this stuff because I think it's worthwhile knowing the extent to which God can tell us if he chooses to do so, the intricacies of like who's going to win the elections and what that's going to be and who's going to dominate the world and geopolitics and who's going to be in control and that sort of thing of, of who is actually in control. The key thing here is God's actually always in control. And remember, Daniel's in a time here where his country has been invaded. They're just now starting to go back to rebuild the temple. And the question he has is, do you still have the promises for Israel? Israel in mind, and are they going to be fulfilled? And God's telling us here, yes, they are, but probably not the way you would choose it. It's not going to be a simple a line between two points. It's going to be a cycle. Things are going to get worse. You know, who's going to dominate you is going to change. Right now, the holy land, the glorious land, the beautiful land is under Persia. It's then going to go under the Greeks because the Ptolemies had it first. Then we're going to see as we go through, it switches to the Seleucids. And then this Antiochus IV, the Seleucid king, is going to do the abomination of desolations. And then the 69 weeks is going to end. And then you're going to have this time of the Gentiles that we're in right now. And then the 70th week is going to happen. And the Antiochus event is going to take place again. And you're going to have another abomination of desolations. But that abominator is going to have the same end as Antiochus IV did. He's going to die not at the hands of a man. We know Antiochus IV died of some disease or something. Uh, we know the Antichrist is going to be thrown straight into the lake of fire by the hands of God. So God's in control. The angelic realm is in full swing. We are part of the drama. God has a plan. He's written the script. So what remains? Well, what remains is whether we're going to play our part or not. Now remember, God can always use a rock in our place, right? It will happen. The question is, will we take the opportunity to play our role? And if we do, then we're going to end up in charge of this world. That is the reward of the overcomer. But it's not going to be in charge like these guys are in charge. These guys are in charge the way Satan wants to be in charge, which is, I will dominate you and you will do my will. No, no, no. The way God is training us to be in charge is, I will serve you because I am doing the will of God. It's exactly the opposite of Satan. And when we serve one another in practical ways, in everyday ways, in our job, in our homes, raising our children, in the church, with one another, in our community, even in geopolitics as we get involved in voting or in advocating for sound policies, all those things, maybe, maybe representing our country in the military, all those things that we're doing, if we do it with an attitude of, I am serving God by serving you, then we are bringing God's kingdom to earth in this corrupt era. And what God wants to do is reward his faithful witnesses that do not fear death with taking this massively violent, dysfunctional world that we're going to see here in spades. And like nothing new under the sun, right? It's going on today still. And he's going to bring it into perfect harmony because his servant kings are going to make it that way. Romans 8 tells us the whole world can't wait. Even all creation is saying, put it back like it's supposed to be. Well, that's what's in our future. And if he predicted this degree to Daniel, and we've already seen all this happen, all the more to believe with total certainty that what he's predicted in our future is going to happen. God, thank you for your 
sovereignty and that you have determined all things and all things will be according to your will. God, thank you for giving us an amazing role in that if we're willing to play it. Help us learn to be faithful witnesses in whatever you've given us to do. Not fear rejection, not fear death. And know that what you have in store for us is beyond our capability to comprehend. Help us believe you. Help us trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 